Hi, welcome to the Car Podcast today. Uh, Brett Smith and I are going to be talking about the variety of propulsion systems that exist in the market today. What is the consumer thinking about those different uh, ways to motor their products? And we'll talk a lot about, you know, how does this impact considerations of chief vehicle engineers and what is the manufacturing plant? How does it need to be changed? And then the famous question is, when are we going to see fuel cells, especially with the dollars being poured into the R&D at the moment? Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CAR podcast. I'm Carla Bailo, the president and CEO for the Center for Automotive Research. And I'm going to have a great discussion today with Brett Smith, the director of technology research here at CAR. And, you know, we've been talking a lot this week about what's happening in the world of, of propulsion systems. We hear a lot about full battery electric Hybrids kind of taken a back seat. This week, we heard tons of stuff on fuel cells. So this week, Brett, let's kind of talk about, you know, how do we decide what propulsion systems to offer? What makes sense from a pricing standpoint? What do the customers want? You know, how is the infrastructure ready for all these alternative propulsion systems? And I think that's a lot to cover in, in 20 minutes. So, you know... Looking at, at what's happening within the industry today, everyone seems to have a little different philosophy. Is that true in your view? Yeah, it is. You know, Carla, it's, it's driven so often by what they do well, what that company has done and what they, they do well, and, and, and maybe how they think the, the battery development is going to move forward. And those, those different inputs tend to, to give us different outputs by the car companies. Obviously, over the decades, and it's been almost two and a half decades now, Toyota has been very clearly believing that hybrid vehicles are a great medium and even long-term solution. I think they've done a fabulous job over that time period of establishing complete dominance in that sector. Um, a couple of years ago, you saw General Motors kind of make a huge pivot at a point where they had uh, several different propulsion systems, and, and Dan, Dan um, Nicholson, the, the president of Powertrain there, talked about um, powertrains coexisting. Very quickly, they kind of changed that and said, you know, maybe it's not coexisting anymore, but there's a future in battery electrics, and let's focus on those. Um, you see these companies with very different inputs come up with very different outputs. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting conversations um I had this week, I was in a CTI symposium earlier this week. And um, one of the questions that was asked by the audience was, you know, what's more complex? Is a battery electric more complex than a hybrid? And, you know, are, are battery electrics, you know, really, really, you know, do they have a lot more parts, a lot more intelligence? And it was surprising to me how many people had the misperception that a battery electric is more complex than a hybrid because battery you have a battery and a motor in hybrid you have an engine a battery a motor 
plus everything else that's required, the after treatment, blah, 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 blah. It's much more complex. Yeah, I remember it's 15, 20 years ago when hybrids were hitting the market, hearing that hand-waving estimate, there, there were five times more code in a hybrid vehicle than there was an internal combustion engine vehicle. And nowadays we realize there's far less code in an electric vehicle because it's less complex. There's less things that you have to balance. A hybrid vehicle is not an optimized vehicle. We know that. It's got two powertrains. It's expensive, but it does some things wonderfully well, especially as we try to figure out the timing of the transition to an electric world. Um, it's never going to be a simpler build, but it's going to be a, an easier conversion for a lot of folks because they still go to a gas station. So maybe a, a more complex vehicle, but maybe a much more simple conversion of, of the technologies for, for consumers. So, you know, when I think back to the Prius, I mean, the Prius was a, a runaway success in certain parts of the world, um, or I should say in certain parts of the U.S. Let's just keep it U.S. I mean, it, it was clearly a West Coast uh, phenomenon there. And, and in certain cities, municipalities also, even around us here in, in Ann Arbor. But, um, when, when we look at, you know, the other products that have come into the market, and let's just talk about plug-in hybrids or range extenders or those kinds of things as a, as a, a, a competitor, so to speak, if, if they compete. The customer acceptance piece of this, when we talk about going from an ICE to an electrified model, the customer still didn't pick up on hybrids. I mean, it's only been in the last year or so that we've started to see the, the customer acceptance. I've often wondered if it's not that complexity element when they think about, geez, I used to have just an internal combustion engine. Now I have that, plus I have a battery, plus I have a motor. And they think, oh my goodness, the maintenance costs are going to go way up or the number of things that can go wrong are going to go way up. Um, did that have a role at all in, in keeping people away from hybrids? Or was it truly just cost? They were a lot more expensive for a while. But even after cost went down, people still weren't yes, snapping it, them up by it, storm. It's been, there's, I think it's about 5% of the market this year, which is a huge leap forward. It's really phenomenal how that's grown in this very strange market. But um, it's struggled. We know that, that Toyota has done a fabulous job but it's still just above a niche product kind of thing. And I think you're right that, that there's so many different parts to that. One is you don't get the payback from the fuel economy because it's pretty cheap gas over the last decade. Mm -hmm. Two is you're paying more, which when people go to buy a vehicle, they look at it and say, hey, I can get this hybrid thing, which helps me, or I can get this really cool Bose audio system. Hmm. I think I'll go with the audio system. And third is, I don't know if I can trust that new technology. It, we can't say it's new technology now, but we can certainly say it's new to most people. And so that fear of new technology is really important. And, and the lessons learned there are important as we talk about battery electric vehicles. It's wonderful for us in the auto industry to talk about how great they are. But for consumers, it's still a lot about, I don't know what it is. I don't trust it. I own reliable here. I know that. Yeah, I know my engine's going to break, but at least I know that. This other stuff costs more, 
and I don't understand it, I got to worry about it. All of those are hurdles for new technology, whether it be automated driving technologies, powertrain technologies, or any other technologies. Is is that fear of what could go wrong with it? Yeah, that and just the fundamental economics, as you rightly point out. I mean, you cannot convince people to buy a hybrid based on any kind of significant ROI. Battery electric, on the other hand, you can. You can do that after a couple years. That cost, especially if we look at incentives and things like that, if we get that right, um, after a couple of years, yeah, the maintenance cost gets a lot, lot better with the battery electric. But you still have a premium that it's hard to convince the ROI today. We uh, have done work over the years and looked at that, that uh, consumers' willingness to consider that return on investment. When will you get that payback period? Is, it, is, is there willingness to be four years? If I get it back in four years, I'll do it. Two years, I'll do it. Six months, I'll do it. And we have to get pushback from the car companies that the consumers, most consumers, look at it and say, I don't really care about that, pay, that uh, payback on it. I don't want to put the money up front. As they start to become more educated about battery electric vehicles or even hybrids, that willingness to think about that payback is going to be better, but it's still a huge hurdle. And, you know, so, some will say they, if you can get paid back in four or five years, the consumers will take it. I don't believe that. I have a hard time believing that as well, quite frankly. I think, you know, people's pocketbooks and today, why are they buying the vehicle? I'm, I'm not so certain it's because they care so much about the fuel economy as they care a lot about. Does it have Apple CarPlay? Does it have Android Auto? You know, the things that allow them to be connected even while they're driving. This seems to be the driver. I was anecdotally talking to somebody uh, about um, a particular brand, and it was a, a salesperson that worked at this brand. And that person said they lost one out of three people when the first question they asked was, do you have Android Auto? And if you did not, they just left the dealer. They didn't want to talk. They didn't want to look at anything. They didn't even care. And that's an amazing thing for those of us that have been in the business for a long, long time. And we think ride and handling and powertrain performance and seat comfort and all those attributes are selling cars. Carl, if I can, if I can flip the, the, the scales here on you for a moment. Um, let me tell a little story. And then as a, a former chief engineer yourself, maybe you can help me out here. Um, and, and I get in trouble when I say this, um, but I, I remember being with a vehicle executive, a powertrain person who said, you know, we surveyed our consumers and 10% of them said they were driving fuel cell vehicles. Um, but we don't produce any fuel cell vehicles <laughs> and we haven't. And it wasn't Toyota, but um, and the point being, the consumers really don't know as much as we think they do. Now, that's not true. A lot of consumers are absolutely passionate about it. But many general public buying mass consumers buy an appliance that they want to have Apple or Apple CarPlay or Android or all these Mm -hmm. things that that make them happy that are what the car means to them, which is really important. But as a chief engineer, how do you look at these technologies and say, okay, this technology is going to be good. How do we figure out how to make them understand that it's going to be good? And is there some play in that game where you go through the process and think, yeah, this is really cool, but does anybody care? It definitely becomes part of the process. And then 
you know, you're always looking at your competition to see what they're offering and how the consumer is reacting to their offering. So you start studying. The minute you launch a vehicle, you start studying for the next launch immediately. And in fact, the advanced planning people are already light years ahead of you in that regard. So for us, as a chief vehicle engineer, the thing that you want to have is at least one or two things that delight the customer that they didn't expect. That becomes what you would call your unique selling point or, you know, why would somebody pick your vehicle over the other? I mean, we, we like to think, yes, our handling is better. We're going we're gonna to prioritize this subjectively at this score, which is above everybody else. And the engineers look at that subjective score and they say, well, based on that, I need to have a, a, a yaw ratio of this and I need <laughs> to have, you know, my NVH rating and DBs at 40 mile per hour at this. And they hit those targets does the consumer really care? You know, if you have a glaring issue at 40 mile per hour, you get this awful transmission whine. Yes, people will, will find that. But some of those small targets that we sweat bullets as engineers, probably the average consumer doesn't know the difference. So, but you have to be really careful because then you can say, well, we can just forget all that. And then you up with a vanilla car that nobody wants because there's no emotion there. So you have to be really careful with the things that you prioritize, how you prioritize, and of course, what you want that vehicle to represent. One of the most fun things as a chief vehicle engineer, you, you always work with product planning. They're first. And product planning would come with several ideas. And, and let's just say uh, the colorful cheetah or the rangy llama. And you would look at this in, as an engineer go, what are they? They want us to make that? You know, a colorful cheetah. Well, we all have an idea when you think of colorful cheetah, something fast, something bold, something strong. You know, but everybody had a different idea. So then as the engineering team, you have to take that colorful language and that positioning relative to the segment and try to make a product out of it. So it it was always a great balancing act. It still is. And, you know, as we now have this plethora of powertrains entering into it as well, I mean, it used to be fuel economy, what engine are we going to put in? Do we need to supercharge it? You know, it, it was pretty simplistic to meet the cafe requirements. You needed to hit this fuel economy level and you worked every angle you could to, to get to that level of performance plus fuel economy. Now you've got all these different options. Each one of them requires development time, development dollars, certification. So, you know, people think a lot of times, oh, you can just plop in all these different motors in the same package and it's easy. No, no, no. It increases your development cost every single iteration, which means you either have to charge more, you have to sell more. You know how the supply and demand economics work. So that's what I'm amazed about now when I see this, you know, additional propulsion technologies coming out across the board so you can get three or four different kinds of propulsion systems, you got to have the volume for that and you got a price for that. Um, 
And then as we move into fully electric vehicles, people are now talking about the skateboard concept. Well, that's not as simple as people think either because you've got variations in that skateboard and each one of those has to be developed as well. So it, we don't want to make it oversimplistic. You know, battery electric is simpler in terms of the number of components, but in terms of development dollars and development cost and manufacturability, it can be almost as complex. So, so coming back to one of the points you made about the, the um, platforms with many powertrain variations, four or five years ago, you saw a lot of companies saying, we're going to build a platform and build several variations off that, like internal combustion, even a gasoline or a diesel, uh, <clears throat> mild hybrid, a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, and heck, maybe even a battery electric. Over the last two or three years, you've seen a lot of companies really separate that and say, you know what, we're taking our battery electric vehicle and making that a completely standalone separate vehicle, and we'll leverage the scale across a lot of those, and we'll focus back on, on those um, internal combustion engine propulsion or platforms and just make one or two variations of those powertrains. And it's been interesting to see different strategies at different companies, but, but taking those two different paths where it's a, a single platform, multi-powertrains, which is wonderful for cost potentially, but it may not be the best for delivering the best vehicle. Whereas building two separate platforms, a BEV platform and an ICE platform allows you to really refine those products, but it probably adds some more cost to it. Um, as we see more and more of that, that kind of challenge as, as we go forward, it's, it's really fascinating to watch the different companies with their different perspectives. Yeah, and then when you think about how you design the rest of the product, once you go to a battery electric vehicle, that adds, that adds a significant amount of weight to the product. It also changes the entire center of gravity. So if you're going to do that, you have to look for more offsets in terms of weight reduction or more efficiency improvements in the battery. And of course, you can add more battery capacity, but then you're just fighting you're just fighting with the mass. So it's a very delicate balance um, and it's not so easily honed in and fine-tuned, I think is probably the customer is thinking. And then, darn it all, does the customer even care what battery is under their vehicle? You know, you, you used to at least feel a little bit of, you know, uh, sensitivity around, I've got a Hemi or I've got a, I've got a Cummins diesel or you know, these, this had meaning in the future is it going to be, I got an LG, I've got an Ultium. I don't think so. What do you think? So, yeah, I think that, that product, <laughs> so a couple of things on that. The product differentiation is going to be really interesting to watch. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, your, your comment about the materials and, and the manufacturing and, and the light weighting. I think this is, and Carla, we've talked about this often. I think this is a really interesting point in time for this industry as we transition, you mentioned skateboard platforms, whatever this new model, new, new way of building vehicles, it could change drastically our manufacturing processes. I think that's something we're, we're looking at this, <clears throat> this fall and, and trying to understand some of the big steps that we take there and, and may happen. Um, I think that um, it changes more than just the powertrain. And it's partly because you can, and partly because as you point out, you have to because of the costs, because of I think for product differentiation, obviously an electric motor and a battery become, when done very well, they become almost 
a, a, unimportant to the vehicle or to the driver because they're so good and they're so similar in many ways. I think what I when I look at it, the new electric vehicles that come out, I think the thing that is really, and this is for a powertrain person, is hard to say, I think the exciting thing and the differentiator is going to be the interiors. Some of the things they're doing with interiors of electric vehicles, they're not necessarily doing with ICE engine vehicles. And when you talk about several um, flat panel displays and different things like that, not going to the automated driving thing where you've got the the living room look, but but really different interfaces, HMI things for these electric vehicles. It moves away from becoming, for, for many, a, a propulsion system differentiator to, boy, that is the greatest interior I've ever seen, or that is so different, I've got to jump from my old car to my new car. I look at some of the new new um, ICE cars coming out, and they look very traditional. I look at some of the new battery electric vehicles coming out, and they look very, very different. And it's exciting. It's risk-taking, but it's exciting. And I think maybe you go from that differentiator being, I got a Hemi um, or I got a supercharger to this is the most remarkable interior I've ever been in. And oh, by the way, it links up to my Apple phone perfectly. Yeah, it's almost like there's two different customer mindsets we're looking at. You know, if you look at an internal combustion engine vehicle and you look at your dashboard, you've got things there that I can guarantee you most people don't even know what they are and don't care. The tachometer, who knows who cares anymore? You don't shift the car. Why is the tachometer there? The 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 uh, temperature of the engine. Nobody cares. If you start to overheat and the check engine light comes on, you care. But in the meantime, does anybody really know where their car is running and if that is right? You know, the the uh, electrical capacity of an internal combustion engine. If you think about all the gauges that you're given on your internal combustion engine, at least from a, let's let's call it a modern perspective, you don't need anything except maybe the speedometer. Maybe. So... But for some of our customers that have been buying vehicles for a long, long time, they want to know where that shift point is, you know, and and they would be severely disappointed if it wasn't there. But this, you know, the new vehicles, the new age vehicles, the high tech battery electric, you can get away with all of that and, and not display all that information that in a lot of cases the consumer won't miss. And it looks like we have just a whole different buyer mindset coming in with electric vehicles, a totally different way of designing, totally different way of thinking, and more freedom with that design than you see in, let's just call it the old ICE vehicles. Yeah, we can can all agree that there's some phenomenal advantages to electric drive motors. There's some wonderful things that the electric vehicle does. But I think the opening up of that interior to a different way of thinking is maybe that one that, to me, I always talk about that hockey stick moment. Mm -hmm. And we always talk about it being propulsion related. Well, maybe it's, yes, obviously it's got to be a battery that's cost effective and has range. But maybe it's what comes along with those folks working on the interiors and working on that, that how we connect to our cars and making it different. And like I said, for someone who grew up for 30 years now playing in the powertrain world, I think, Wow, gee, I mean, I spent all my time just to to tell people at the end, it just matters what's in the interior. 
It's kind of painful, but and and the experience for the customer, the right? Which... The experience. So I want to just take us back for a couple more topics. One on plugins. There's a lot of debate. Do we should we have plugins or not? I know that when the Volt first came out, which is now being canceled because of GM's philosophy. Um, there were so many drivers. In fact, there was like this club of who put the least amount of gas in their vault during the entire time they owned it. Um, so it was nice to have that insurance, but at the same time, nobody wanted to actually have to use that, that motor unless they had to on a long trip, right? So there was that club. There were also the people who said, hey, I got X amount of miles on the electric, and then I drove the rest of the way up north, and it was fine. Um, but, you know, plug-ins are very limited in terms of their overall carbon footprint reduction. And I wonder if we're going to keep seeing plug-ins or range extenders, or if we're just going to go to the world of hybrid and, and battery and, and forget about everything that's in between. And like all of these technologies, there are positives and negatives. Um, and with plug-ins, I think that's that's as well the case, plug-in hybrids. <clears throat> but I think one of the, it's almost, no, it's not almost always, often it's about hype or not hype, um, enthusiasm. And with plug-in hybrids, I've seen kind of an anti-plug-in um, theme out there that, well, these vehicles are used to get around regulations and the people that own them often never even plug them in. They drive them. Um, as gasoline cars because they were given real incentives to buy them. In Europe, this has been the case for a while. Um, and so they're, they're not even as clean as gasoline cars because you're carrying around a big old electric motor and a big old um, uh, battery. They're, they're a bad idea. Now, that's not necessarily true, but there's, there's that kind of aura out there, that feeling about them, which I think um, hurts Certainly in Europe, I think we certainly in Europe we see this. I think in this country they're still so uncertain and they're still low volume. Um, they do offer some positives, but as we talked at the beginning, a hybrid is more complex than a, a battery electric vehicle or an ICE. A plug-in hybrid is even more complex than a hybrid vehicle because you've got a plug and a bigger battery, and more cost. And if it's not used just right, it's probably not a more efficient vehicle. And then you're wondering how many different variations can you get and still be cost effective? You know, I would never buy one. Hmm. I don't like filling my, ga my gas tank as it is. I'm not fond of plugging in a battery, but if I have to do one, I only want to do one. I don't want to have to do both. So, That's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, for me as a consumer, it's just immediately off the list. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's not, you mean I can do both. It's you mean I have to do both? <laughs> yeah. If I really want to get the payback that I, I should and the, and the you know carbon footprint reduction that I want. So let's close talking a, about fuel cells. And, you know, we've had some great announcements this week by Hyundai. We know that Toyota has been very active in the development. GM and Honda are working together on fuel cells. We have others who poured billions into fuel cells, like Mercedes and Ford, that just, I'm done. I'm not even going to get into that market. 
And then, you know, if uh, the famous chicken and the egg story of there aren't, there's no place to fuel these things, you know, if we're going to put them in heavy trucks, that might make sense at ports or at hub locations where they can fuel and we can just put the infrastructure in one place. But we're already having one heck of a time just getting battery uh, charging stations around. How in the world are we going to handle hydrogen stations too? Is this, you know, and we often joke, you know, we've been saying fuel cells are 10 years away. And then when that 10 years come, it's another 10 years. We, we've been saying that for a long, long time. But I wonder now with all the money being poured in, maybe this time we'll hit it and we'll actually have fuel cells, especially on those products where electrification may not make sense in the long run. So you, you mentioned the 10-year thing. I had the great pleasure back 15, 20 years ago now at least, of working with a guy named Al Sobey. Al worked for General Motors before he worked with me and worked with us. But um, Al was the one who brought fuel cell technology to General Motors in 1964. And Al claims to be the guy that started the 10-year thing because he said, I came in and told the board, this is going to be the technology in 10 years. And then 10 years later, they asked me and I said, it's going to be 10 years later. And it's been 10 years later for 50 years now. Um, there, You're right. There were some remarkable announcements made this week about people, getting, I won't say getting back into it, but, but making it public that they're involved in it. And I think um, part of that comes from the fact that these companies realize that there may need to be alternatives for long haul trucking, maybe not short point to point trucking, but long haul trucking. And, and as GM and, and the folks at GM have said, maybe other things like um, trains. The United States right now, there is no good way to decarbonize our long freight haul rail system. Absolutely no way. And electric trains won't work. We're not going to put up cantonary systems all across um, North Dakota. Um, so there are options and intriguing places to put hybrids, to put, hybrids, to put um, fuel cells. Maybe as that develops, it may also come back into automobiles. We can't. It's maybe 10 years from now or maybe more. But um, it, it is really, I think, useful to, to watch these companies and think about maybe where the electric vehicle isn't a perfect fit. Because it, there are places where fuel cells might be an interesting option. And yes, it does take a lot of infrastructure. Um, but maybe it lessens the amount of infrastructure you have to put in for electrification for long haul and some other things. Um, I'm going to stick with Al. It's still 10 years away. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's really exciting to watch the stuff happen there. And, and a good competition is always best for the consumer, right? I agree adding, 100%. Adding choices. Yeah, choices. Choices. And forcing people to get better. Yeah. So hearing that about GM, are we going to have Electromotive start up again? <laughs> well, they're partnering with Obesto, right, to, to sell their fuel cell to the... Yep, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, it's good old... Maybe, maybe it's going to come back full circle. EMB. GM will be back in the railroad business. Electromotive division. We shall see. So that will sign off on our podcast now. Thanks so much for joining us as we talked about the the war raging in the propulsion world and... I know we didn't solve anything today, but I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks. Thanks.